0: Hey, Darren. How's it going there, Eddie? I just went out and grabbed a mail, and this came in the long pack. Okay. I don't know what it is, but I don't want no PPL, no PPP, none of that crap.
1: Whatever it is, I'm sure you can get five minutes of material out of it. Yes. Well, my first question to you is, I've never heard anyone in the world call you Ed or Edward. Are you those names to anybody in the world, or is it Eddie to everyone? Oh no, I'm Edward to my mother.
0: That's when I know I'm in trouble. She used the full-on government name. I'm in trouble. Edward, all right, what did I do? And uh, Ed, my baby brother calls me Ed. A couple of my very close friends call me uh, Ed or E.G.
1: Now I know. Well, congratulations on this great special. Laughing Through Your Mask is very funny, but we also get to see a very unique new side of you. You talk politics. Now, I said that because... I, as a longtime fan, know that you could do impressions, you could do physical comedy, you could do everything. And I haven't seen a lot of political material from you. Did you know, hey, this is going to be a political uh, special right off the bat?
0: No, I mean, we literally shot it uh, the day after the riots. And so heavy in my mind and on my
1: heart. It just spewed out. And did you... like work get to workshop any of the material beforehand because it seems like it's pretty damn raw no that's just off the
0: down freewilling.
1: yeah now you talk about early into the documentary which we also see in the trailer that the only time that you really feel comfortable is when you have a mic when you're on stage that kind of a thing now people who've been really following you for a long time know that Within like a year of you doing stand-up, you were playing the garden opening up for dice. Yeah. Now, do you look back at the earliest material you, you did very proudly, or did you think that you only got good as a stand-up in, in recent years? Um, now I can look back on it proudly for for for
0: a kid coming out of KC, 19 years old, opening up for the biggest comedian on earth at the garden.
1: Uh, yeah. But what it was. Yeah, it, it was good. Because a lot of comics I talk to, they say, man, I didn't get good until eight, nine years. And don't tell me any of the old material. And your first Def Jam comedy spot. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Still makes me laugh. But are you proud of it? Um, I wish I'd have slowed down. The
0: pace was like you know, like a manic depressed, you know. I, I, I didn't even take a breath to let the laughter build, you know. What I mean, just da, 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 da. and then I'm it's over like that. But yeah, if, if I could do it again, I'd, I'd have dressed a little bit better. <laughs> what could you do? Suede boots, Chicago bull
1: sweats, a camouflage jacket, and a Jamaican hat. It, it was the 90s. What could you do? But yeah. doing the the MJ routine that you did at the end right there, like you're you must have been like you were in good shape, but you must be out of breath. Like you have to do that at the end of the show. Was that always your closer? No, just for that particular show. Really? Yeah. yeah and, just for that. Yeah. Well, and you got to know Michael, which is pretty amazing because not everybody got to know him. Did you have to drop that from your act once you got to know him? Or did he no. actually purge that?
0: No, uh, that was one of Michael's favorite jokes. And I found it out from uh, his limo driver. He said he was sitting in the back, watching over and over. And he'd, he'd always say, yeah, he's a fan now because he's got the moves down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, as I said before, you are great at impressions. I, the Dice Clay routine is kind of how you got... The, the gig opening up for him. We do see the voices come out in the middle of the special, like when you start singing the Top Hat song and all that. Was it ever kind of your goal to be a voiceover guy? Uh, no, but I, I should look into it, shouldn't I? I think so. Like, okay, all right. How many impressions do of yours like seep into it? Like, okay, Dice, Michael Jackson, <laughs> standard white guy impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has so much range to it. Did you realize that you were an impressionist or is it just haphazard and accidental that you could do all those?
0: Haphazard, accidental. Yeah, you know I mean,
1: uh, I think them and they, and they come and they come. Got it. Because I've always heard that on set, most of your movies that we love that are comedies, you ad-libbed a lot of the lines on set. Mm-hmm. And I remember Howard Stern kind of delved into that on Deuce Bigelow, that a lot of the stuff was yours. And then, you know, that was kind of debated and all that. But do you have any improv in your background besides doing stand-up?
0: Uh, there was an improv troupe in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, and I, I worked out with him for about three months. Yeah, that's that's about it. And, you know, my uh, my acting uh, high school uh, acting uh, teacher, uh, Margaret Meems, would have us improv.
1: Wow. Uh, I had the pleasure of going to Kansas City for the first time about a year and a half ago. The city brought me out as a travel writer to write about it. And I checked out the KC Improv. Awesome club. Do you view that as like a home club of yours? Uh, Stanford and Sons was my home club. But, yeah, uh,
0: the improv in Kansas City now is, yeah, my home away from home.
1: But these days, Vegas is the permanent home?
0: Yeah, Vegas is a permanent home, and I have uh, my
1: my residency at the Sahara. Yeah, I saw that. uh, Oh, oh, it's not at the Rio anymore. Moved to the Sahara. Yeah, I've been in Sahara now for three years. Wow, okay. So when in your life did you say, hey, Vegas is the new home for me, this is my thing?
0: Um. L.A. just became convoluted. Too many people, you couldn't really go out because everywhere you go, you know, as a waitress, I'm really an actress. Well, can you act like you're bringing me some food? And action. (laughs) When she dropped the plate off, cut, thank you. You know, so, uh, and it's just it was just completely overpriced and, uh, you know, the tax dollars are getting eaten up. Uh, There's no state taxes out here in Vegas, so, you know,
1: I'm saving
0: six figures right there. Uh, and no potholes. So, you know, I don't have to charge it to, to, to get my shocks fixed because, you know, L.A. is just one pothole after another.
1: So it, it was it was a proper move. for me. Well, when I was a kid, Vegas was kind of where careers went to die. And then I would say in the last 15 years, George Wallace helped bring back Vegas as a cool stand up destination. And it's no longer just bad magicians and all that. Who mm-hmm. is it that kind of hipped you to Vegas being cool?
0: Uh, me, myself, and I. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> me, myself, and I. I would just hop on that little 40-minute flight, come up, sniff around. I said, all right, we're going to make that move. We made the move. And I I, I spent a year before I even uh, uh, set up a residency out here just sniffing the territory. And I uh, popped up at the, the Rio, talked to Darren Feinstein, who's now one of my, my, my best friends. And uh, we, we hit it off and we've been doing it ever since.
1: Hmm. Well, that feeds into something that I'm curious about with you, which is that you're not just a comic, you're not just an actor, you're not just a screenwriter, et cetera, et cetera. You're, you're what I call the comedy entrepreneur, where like every product and project that you do, you clearly produced, you clearly helmed the whole thing from start to finish. Was that kind of the game plan from day one that you were gonna be at that rare level where you had your hand in every phase of every project? Uh,
0: pretty much, yeah. I'm a, I don't know if I'm a control freak or what, but yeah. Uh, I, I, I like uh, giving my fans, uh, my, my pure vision, I don't like it stepped on, uh, cut up, watered up, you know, so.
1: So does that mean that every day like there's a to-do list of like 20 things and you're delegating a bunch of things and you're going to all these people, hey, where are we at with this? Hey, welcome to my life. You you must be doing the same thing. Maybe, maybe not, <laughs> but I'm uh, not at your level, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so this special that you have laughing through your mask, it's very unique in that we've seen stand-up specials over the years that have, you know, a little talking before it, like all the HBO specials of the early nineties used to have like a three minute sketch and then it gets into it. But in your case, it actually cuts from that to your opinions on things and your commentary. So is the show, the final project and product that we see totally what you had in mind or did it all just come off the fly? Um,
0: after the events of uh, the sixth, yeah. Uh, and I just went on stage, you know, we, we were gonna record it regardless. So I had to throw out all the material that I had planned, uh, except for a couple of a couple of bits toward the end that I had planned. Um, so uh, after that, then it was just hell in the editing room, man. You know what I mean, uh, putting it together to make it make sense. And uh, yeah, I believe uh, 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 my editor, Daryl Weaver, he, he did one hell of a job.
1: Yeah, it's pretty seamless. It looks cool. It looks great. The microphone that you have on stage, I'm assuming that's your microphone. The yes, it microphone. is. Yeah. Where did that come from? Because I've never seen a microphone color that way before. Oh, it's,
0: it's, 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 it's wooden. I, I believe it's mahogany. And uh, 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 what's the name of that company? I don't know, man, I I should be plugging them like a mug. Hold on, let me me look right quick. Sure. Yeah, Telefunken.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty eye-catching Microphone and the thing is, when you have the, you have your glass of I think it's champagne. You don't have to say if you don't want to incriminate yourself. You have the champagne in one hand, you have the cool looking mic in the other hand. Mm-hmm. Is that coolness natural or is that kind of in your writer that I'm going to look like this? Oh no, uh, that's just natural. That's just me being me. Figured because it's tough to see with somebody like yourself. Because I watch you on stage, and on the one hand, it's clearly material. And on the other hand, you seem so relaxed that if a heckler hit you midline, you could immediately sit them down. Mm-hmm. So at what point in your career did you just stop becoming nervous or getting nervous before going on? Because I'm looking at a guy that is just so relaxed that everyone in every profession, like a dentist, must look at you and go, I wish I were that way when I was with the patient. <laughs> um I believe
0: I, I I think it's like it's been like four or five years ago where um I felt myself just totally relaxed and at home on stage. Uh like you like you said on Def Jam, you know, the energy was just sporadic and you yeah. could tell I was a nervous little wreck, but I just made it through it. You know what I mean? Um I don't know, uh, uh, yeah, I found my voice and I'm at home. Yeah, you know I mean, uh, seven years at the Rio, uh, three nights to four nights a week, and then gigs on the weekend. So I'm pushing like six nights a week for the last six or seven years. You, you, you know, you tend to get at home uh, doing it that often.
1: Well, the other element to that is when I think back to an interview that I did like eight months ago with. With Oates from Hall and Oates, I assume you know Hall and Oates. Mm-hmm. You're not going to admit you're a fan, but you're a fan. That's oh it. no, I
0: can uh, admit it. I'm a big fan. Yeah, well, they, them, them Philly boys can. They, they got so.
1: Of course they do. And Oates, like he's been playing arenas and stadiums and big, big venues for like 40 years now. But he just did this live album where it's in front of a club. So, you know, that's he's going to be four feet from the people in the front row. And most performers just can't do that switching off between arena and club thing. Yet I'm looking at you at that venue for this special and no problem there. It doesn't look like you're afraid at all of being three feet from the crowd. Not at all, man. The closer, the better. Um, comedy is to be served intimately.
0: You know, uh, we, we, we do the large venues because, you know, a lot of people want to see us and we can make <laughs> money in one night. So uh, I'm, I'm not juxtaposed to that, but if I had my choice, which I did, for this special, I chose a small
1: club. Right. Well, do you got time for three more questions and then you're a free man? Yeah, sure. Let's shoot. Okay. This comes from my friend Grog, who knows everything about movies ever. And he wanted me to ask if The Last Boy Scout was as cool to film as it looked like it was. The last, yes, it was. I, I played
0: the DJ with Halle Berry in in, uh, in in a strip club. Yes, it was wonderful. Yes, that just was your first hang rumor. out with Halle. it was, it was cool. <laughs> the
1: the second thing is one of the things that the internet that I'm pretty sure is wrong about you on is they always put that you were on save by the Bell, and I don't think you were on save by the Bell. That's just a rumor. Correct. Correct. I've so,
0: never I've never been saved by any bell.
1: there you go and my last question is what is eddie griffin's favorite show on television these days my
0: favorite show on television below the deck
1: below the deck what channel is that on i believe it's on uh bravo wow i don't know that who's in that uh, it's 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 a
0: reality show. It's 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 about this uh, the yacht crew and how they have to uh, interact with each other below the deck when all these rich fancy guests are on top, uh, just ordering, shit, not gonna
1: eat. And, you know, I I just find it hilarious. Wow. Well, I've just learned so much from speaking with you. So can't thank you enough for your time and hope to see you live in New York when things get normal again, man. Yes and or or Vegas. I, I think you said the Sahara is where we have to go to see you. Yes, Sahara. Monday, Sahara. Tuesday, and Wednesday nights. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Well, congrats again on uh, laughing through your mask, looking forward to seeing whatever's coming next. And the best way to find you online is being a Griffin insider. Yes, go to uh, Eddie dot
0: com, dot com and you can and and sign up. And, uh, uh, hey, grab a subscription. We got some gifts for you. You got hats, coffee mugs, all
1: All of it. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, man. Keep up the greatness. Thank you, bro. Take care. All right. Outrocast. Imelda, I really appreciate you taking the time. But before I ask anything about the new album, does anyone in the world not call you Amelda? Like, is there a nickname that people call you by that we don't know about? No. OK. Lesson learned. <laughs> Well, congratulations on this new album. I am a big, big fan of it because it shows off what a great singer and songwriter you are, as always. But people that first knew you as a rockabilly artist, they might be a little surprised. And what I love about it is it's simultaneously artistic and commercial. Uh, Oh. So not many people can pull that off. A song like Made to Love, like that could be the theme to the Olympics but nobody can really go like, oh, she sold out or anything like that. So congratulations. And when did you finish the album?
2: Wow, thank you. Um, uh, I finished it mostly before lockdown over here. I finished writing it, um, but I had to do a few, few more bits of writing, a few more bits of recording, but definitely all of the mixing in lockdown, which took, Way longer than than uh, if I had been in person. Because it was myself and Tim Brand co-produced the album. Yeah. I produce or co produce all, all my albums. So normally you'd get into the studio, book it for a week and spend every hour of the day in there. And uh, it's quite an intense but very enjoyable process for me. It's like everything that you've been doing over the last while, all the recordings, all the back and vocals that I've done, all the guitars, every single take, you get to go through all of it and put it together like a jigsaw puzzle. And it's just, I don't it's like me being in a, a candy store, you know, it's <laughs> just the most delicious part of the process, but I didn't get to do that. It was lots of emails back and forth that, that took ages. So, um, but I had most of it done before, before year
1: Most times I find that albums are two ways when it's an established artist like yourself. It's either there's two cameos on it, like two outside collaborator situations, or it's an all-star album. You're kind of the middle ground of that, where I think you've got like five or six outside collaborators. Did you know outright that you wanted to have such a collaboration-heavy record? I don't think
2: it's a collaboration-heavy record. I just think, um, I just go by fun, really. It's. I can't tell you that. I'd love to tell you. It's a. It's a, 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 a. bigger thought process than that. But it's really not for me. It's just pure fun, and um, I get really worked up. I'm quite childlike in that way, you know, uh, where I think, "Oh my God!" You know, Ronnie would kill the solo on this. I'm going to call. Oh, it's more like that, and Ronnie and I had only worked together on his Chuck Berry tribute album so I I was saying would you be up for it, he was like, let me know, I would love to let me know if you need me I'm on it so we took because we would such a great time we did a short tour um, of his Chuck Berry album and it was just magical we had a great time and so of course of course I wanted to work with him again of course I wanted to right. repeat you know so it's like yes and I called him said you fancy doing and the same as Noel, you know, it was like he, he, we were texting and I knew I wanted it to be a duet. And I, I'd, not long uh, before I had seen Noel in the Palladium with the high flying birds. And my brain was, as I was watching, was going on oh, because I was really needing it on that. I knew that song should have been a duet. And I thought Noel would be, ju-. I love his voice. Yes. I love his voice, but I love his, I thought, God Noel, he would read that, that it needs a sexy voice and he has that you know, needed that vibe and so we were texting and just asked him to do it and Gina Martin yeah <coughs> Dr. Shola Moss, Shogba Mimu they're wonderful feminists and human rights fighters for love so it just made perfect sense to have their voices on a song and I don't mean just voices as in singing voice. I mean, lend their voices to a song that was about fighting for love. And Niall McElroy, um, you know, he and I were, had met, and you know, we had a bit of a spark and ended up writing together. And he's now downstairs making me a cup of coffee. He's still here.
1: <laughs> did, so, you, did you have to pare it down from like 30 songs or something like that?
2: But, sorry?
1: Uh, did you have to pare it down? I, I apologize for interrupting, but no. sometimes when you hear an album and has, you know, 10, 12 songs, the artist is like, yeah, well, we chose the best, you know, batch from the 30. Did you have to pare down a lot of songs or did every song you write for the album make the album? Oh
2: no, I had about 18, I definitely wanted on the album. And then I had to pare it down from that. And um, I don't know. There's a. I don't know what I'll do with the others. or If I'll do any, anything at all, I tend to. I tend to overwrite on each album. Um, but I. I I think I almost never go back because when it's time to write something else, I'm in a different place, you know. So I just leave them at that period of time. If they weren't supposed to be on the album, then maybe it's time I should just leave them go. But there are a couple on there that. I think I'd like to do something with it,
1: and I don't know what yet. Cool. Well, one of the things that I think is cool about you and your discography is that you're not afraid to start an album with a ballad. A lot of people have to kind of front load albums where like start it with something loud or fast or upbeat, and then they ease into the ballad. Whereas in your case, you're able to go, this is a great song. I'm starting with the great song. Did you ever have any hesitance or blowback from record companies going, Mm, start with the peppy thing.
2: Oh God, no, um, no. They know me well. They're used to me being headstrong. I and I wonder if part of that is, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I've um I've never been formally um musically educated, um. So I've always uh, like I learned from singing and playing and mm-hmm. pubs and and listening and so i think maybe everything i do is ruled by my gut what feels right so i i never have a methodical view uh, cuz i don't i can't see you know that i don't see what the method is or what it's for other than if it feels right or doesn't feel right that's 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 it really for me if it if i i move them all around and i'll, I'll play it a million times and sure. change the order of them and then we'll have to listen back to the beginning again to just to, to feel how it flows and twist and turn of course i'll take um advice you know and um, with record company or management where if i get stuck the same as as you would i'll say listen it, do you think this variation or if i flip those two songs around at the end or this and and of course, I'll, I'll, I'll listen. I'm not that pig-headed, but it is really from. <laughs> it's from, um, I think it's from the right place, you know, from me. It's all about art and creativity and just what feels good.
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you weren't formally trained, that's not something that I think that people would pick up on because when they see you perform, and this is a compliment, there's no like backhanded butt to it. (laughs) When they see you perform, you're just very natural on stage. You don't look like a person who'd ever be nervous before going on stage. But when people first learned about you as a rockabilly kind of artists. A lot of people were asking, hey, who are Amelda's influences? And we heard about Eddie Cochran and early Elvis and that kind of stuff. I was curious if you ever had bad influences or metal influences, because otherwise I'm only seeing that you only listen to cool music your whole life that you could never be embarrassed about. But I don't think
2: there is bad you know, bad music is sucked. But well, of course, there is bad music. But if, if it's all led to being inspired, then it's led to something, if you like. But it wasn't just Eddie Cochran and Gene. I, that's what it's funny. That's what people printed. I would give a long list of things and they oh. would make sense to the interview or who they want, you know, thought I, I would be and they it down. But I always said it was a massive mixture, I think. Billie Holiday was my first record then I got into Hell and Wolf, um, uh, Sisters out of Tarp, um, Bruce Brown and then it went all the way through into of course Janis Joplin and Aretha Franklin, Rolling Stones, David Bowie, The Clash, Ramones, The Cramps it just kind of all it was everything just that I that moved me. Um, and continuously, just Pink Floyd was a massive um, influence on me. The backing vocals in the yeah. great gig in the sky—just that was—I tried to copy that over and over and over because I couldn't. I've never heard somebody seemingly lose it, and I mean that in the best possible way. Yeah. And I—that was a massive influence to me. But course, I mean, I love. I love loads of bonkers stuff as well. I love I I love Whitney Houston. That's my karaoke go to. I love Diana Ross and they're all brilliant. You know, it's. Can't really say there's that to Boney M, but are they bad? I don't think they're bad. I think they're great.
1: I I think that's something that's bad. You hear that enough times and you realize you know every syllable of it and it becomes good without you knowing it. And Boney M definitely is in that category. (laughs) Um, Are you the kind of artist?
2: When I got into Boney M, I was only a child and I remember hearing them. And they did, I remember we went to, we were in church a lot because I was brought up typically Irish Catholic. And I remember they did a few hymns like down by the riverside and all that and I was going oh my god this is like this is a, I thought they made it really cool and then I thought I'd never heard hymns kind of song like that because it was always very folky that I was into so yeah. I suppose I don't know I thought they were very when I was a kid I thought they were really cool so I have a love for them forever I suppose.
1: Well I, I appreciate that honesty are, are you <laughs> able to listen to music when you're in your writing mode? No, good
2: question. No, because it's it's weird. People presume, you know, if you're in a house. For me, when I'm songwriting, it's the quietest house, because otherwise I just write that song and you don't even realise you're doing it. It might be the next day or two days later and you go, oh, I have a great song. There's a (laughs) star Oh, this is good. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on.